This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is brought to you by Book Riot Insiders, the digital bookish resource and hangout spot for readers. Enrich your reading life with our Book Riot Insiders perks. We've got three levels to Insiders, short story, novel, and the epic level. And you can try any level out for free for two weeks. For podcast lovers, meaning you, Insiders at the novel and epic level get access to two exclusive shows, the Read Harder podcast, which gives recommendations for the Read Harder challenge, task by task, and Book Riot Remixed, where we randomly pair up hosts from across our shows to talk about... Well, whatever they want. Insiders also get exclusive access to bookish deals, behind-the-scenes newsletters, our new release index, the Epic Book Club, and more. Sign up for your free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly non-fiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Yukura. We're recording on Wednesday, June 30th. Hi, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, I'm swell. How are you? I'm almost on vacation, so I also am swell. A lot of people – okay, this this sounds ridiculous to be like, oh, wow, well, it's – a lot of people are going on vacation this <laughs> summer. So strange. But maybe it's because of that mentality of no one's leaving their home. Yeah, I think so. So all of a sudden, yeah, like people being like, I'm going to a lake. It's like, oh, you're going to a lake? Oh, wow. Whereas yeah. normal summers, not interesting. Exactly. And like – you know, I, it's 4th of July this weekend, right? So I think a lot of people took, like, this week off going into the holiday weekend. A lot of people are taking, like, going today, kind of forward through next week. And it just – I think a lot of people are taking, like, extra days that they wouldn't normally take around this time just because we all got a – well, many of us have a lot of PTO banked up to do that. Those of us who are lucky enough to have that. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, I think I've been hearing, like, a lot of people – taking a time off. Whereas I, okay, well, this weekend, I was telling you before the podcast, I have not been reading a lot. I read, well, completed one book in June because I read parts of many others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I read all of Memorial Drive. It was so good. But um, I'm really hoping this weekend to set some intentional hours nice, and just be like from, you know, let's say 4 to 5 p.m. I'm going to read. And yes. actually try to finish something. Uh, it's just been a it's been a June struggle. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I had a really good reading month in June, but that hasn't been the case for a lot of the year. So, I I totally understand where you're at. So, speaking of reading, what have you had any favorite books of the year, nonfiction in particular, so far? Oh, right, because we're talking about second half. Well, yes. um, so one, yeah, I had an audiobook that uh, on a road trip, my, my wife and I finished it. It was so good. It's You'll Never Believe What Happened to Lacey, Crazy Stories About Racism by Amber Ruffin and Lacey Lamar, her sister. It was just, oh my gosh. It's like, it was, it was my wife, me and her sister. And after it ended, we all just kind of like sat there in contemplative silence. <laughs> 
Like, it's funny, but also, like, really makes you re-examine things and also mm-hmm. just makes it so clear how many, like, both large and small instances of racism and anti-blackness in particular happen all the time. Which, as if you're a white person, you frequently just, you don't see because you're not experiencing it. Mm-hmm. But that was really good. Uh, on a completely different note was follow the flock, how sheep shaped human civilization. <laughs> <laughs> By Sally Coulthard. Um, I that book is so fun, and I was recently talking about the benefits of wool as a direct result of that book. <laughs> That's amazing. So my two favorites of the year so far have actually both been memoirs. I've been having a hard time with like fact-based nonfiction this year. Like I really need stories, and so the the nonfiction that's been resonating with me has been memoir a lot. So um, one of my favorites I talked about right at the beginning of the year, I think. Between Two Kingdoms, A Memoir of a Life Interrupted by Sulika Jowood, which is a memoir about her uh, experience being uh, diagnosed with a very serious form of cancer in her early 20s, um, her treatment, and then her experience after she was in remission for cancer. And uh, it's a lot about creativity and grief and just really, really a beautiful, stunning, beautifully written memoir. And then the other memoir I just talked about, I think, last week, uh, but it is definitely going to be one of my favorites, uh, Nowhere Girl, A Memoir of a Fugitive Childhood by Cheryl Diamond, which was just this bananas book about a woman who grew up completely on the run because her parents were con artists, her dad in particular. Um, she changed identities all the time. And just that one was just a real page turner for me. I finished in like two days because it was just like dark, but also twisty and really good. So... Those are my favorites so far. I saw Nowhere Girl was on Hoopla, the library app, and I was very excited about that. Mm, yeah. Because I get, I get six a month. I bet it would be good as an audiobook, I think. Like, it really just, like, moves along. I think it'd be fun. Awesome. Well, uh, as as alluded to uh, later in the episode, our, our whole topic this episode is going to be books coming out in the second half of 2021 that we're jazzed about. But before we get there, we have another sponsor. Uh, This week's episode is also sponsored by How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. Beginning in his hometown of New Orleans, the Atlantic staff writer and poet Clint Smith leads readers on an unforgettable tour of monuments and landmarks, those that are honest about the past and those that are not, that offer an intergenerational story of how slavery has been central in shaping our nation's collective history and ourselves. How the World is Passed frees history, frees humanity to reckon honestly with the legacy of slavery, raves Abram X. Kendi, a National Book Award-winning author of How to Be Anti-Racist. We need this book. And this book recently came out. It debuted at number one on the New York Times nonfiction hardcover bestseller list, which is really impressive. I've seen this all over social and it sounds awesome. Author Clint Smith is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's also the author of a poetry collection. Um, His writing has been published in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Poetry Magazine, The Paris Review, and elsewhere. This book is history that is relevant now. How the Word is Passed covers the 153 years since the Civil War and the over 400 years since the first ship carrying enslaved people arrived in America and ranges across the South and up to New York. Older and younger readers will recognize their lives reflected in Smith's deep understanding. So if you would like a road trip book that's also serious and very important and also very good, How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. All right, so we are going to do anticipated books for the year. So these are all books that I think it's fair to say we have not read these at all. We just poked around and looked, and these are some of the books that are on our lists for the remainder of the year. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, here we are. My first book that I'm excited about comes out July 27th from Henry Holt, and it is Swan Dive, The Making of a Rogue Ballerina by Georgina Pazaguin. 
And so she is a soloist known as the Rogue Ballerina. And in this book, she gives readers a backstage tour of the world of elite ballet, the gritty, the funny, and the shocking stuff that you just, like, will not see. And I don't know why I'm obsessed with ballet memoirs. Like, I think I've talked about at least one other one this year, but I am very <laughs> into them right now, even though, like, I've, I have no reason. The author was the first Asian-American female soloist at the New York City Ballet, and she, um, this memoir is just her story of leaving her small town in Pennsylvania to go to New York City to train um, amid the unique demands of being a hybrid professional athlete and artist. She kind of just brings us inside the ballet. She also talks about how the ballet was rocked by the we, the Me Too movement um, and so how the, the world of ballet is having to kind of respond to that and how um, she also shares some of the dark sides of it, um, speaking about the sexual harassment, mental abuse, and racism that in the past has not been a part of what we see publicly about ballet. So yeah, like I said, I don't really know why I'm so into ballet memoirs or the idea of ballet memoirs right now, but I super am. And so this one is high on my list. Swan Dive, The Making of a Rogue Ballerina by Georgina Pazaguin. I like how you've been highlighting ballet <laughs> memoirs. I think it's fun. I don't know what it is, but man, I'm just like very, very into it. My mom was always referencing Gelsey Kirkland's Dancing on My Grave, I think that's the name of it. <laughs> Don't quote me. But she was uh, she was very into ballet. Um, okay, my first pick, I, I remember seeing this for the – I mean, I like – well, okay. The first time I saw this, I was like, oh, my gosh, this book, yes. Uh, it is called Horse Girls. <laughs> Sorry. Recovering, Aspiring, and Devoted Writers Redefine the Iconic Bond by Halima Marcus. So – I never really thought of myself as a horse girl, and then I talked to other people about what my past with horses is, and they were like, yeah, you were a horse girl. <laughs> so, um, anyway, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's fine. I'm not going to get into my, my whole history with horses, but just trust that it's a thing. So this is an essay collection that is uh, looking at what horse girls are seen as, which is, uh, it says the stereotypical horse girl is white, thin, rich, straight, uh, and, you know, just generally privileged. And so Halima Marcus says, uh, not necessarily, right? And if you don't know what a horse girl is, th the way that Halima Marcus sort of positions it is uh, when she wasn't around horses, she was pretending to be one, which I can also vouch, yes, that's <laughs> <laughs> this is a thing. Uh, it says cantering on two legs, which I'm also, I'm kind of like, mm, you're supposed to do it on four, and then you set up obstacles, and then you show jump as you're, this was done at a birthday party in my third grade. Anyway, so point being, okay, so it's an essay collection, and it, it gathers uh, a bunch of different voices. So uh, Carmen Maria Machado, uh, Jane Smiley, Tikira Madden, Maggie Shipstead, Courtney Mom, and uh, reframes the iconic bond between girls and Horses. It also has emerging voices like um, Brody Blay Billy, who uh, talks about the connection between her Seminole and Quebecois heritage. Uh, Sarah Enlo Snyder on growing up as a black barrel racer in central Texas, which sounds amazing. And Noor Nazreen Ibrahim on the colonialist influence on horse culture in Pakistan. So if that sounds interesting to you, which I mean, it absolutely should. Uh, oh, so good. It, this is Horse Girls. Recovering, Aspiring, Devoted Writers Redefine the Iconic Bond by Halima Marcus. That sounds amazing. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm like so jazzed about it. I mean, it's, this yeah. genuinely fits within this, you know, books we're excited about for the second half because, yeah. oh, goodness. 
So good. So good. All right. So my next one is not as fun, but I think sounds super interesting anyway. Uh, it's Hard Landings, Looking into the Future for a Child with Autism by Cami McGovern, which comes out in August from Avery. This is, quote, a game-changing exploration of what the future holds for the first generation of mainstreamed neurodiverse kids that is coming of age. So Cami McGovern is, uh, her son is named Ethan, and he has autism and an intellectual disability. Once he turns 22, he falls off what she calls the disability cliff, which means that he's aging out of the school system, and so he's going to lose access to a lot of the social, educational, and vocational resources that being in school has for him. But... The issue is that these resources have trained Ethan in skills for jobs that don't exist in a life he can't have. So school is kind of preparing him to go out in the world, but now that he is ready to go out, like the world is not ready for him and is not prepared for him and other kids like him. And so uh, in this book, she really looks at what the situation is. So she goes around the country looking at options for work and housing, and um, the, the book jacket says that she's discovers reasons to be optimistic, which I think is really good. So um, it's about what should parents with neurodiverse kids do to try and prepare them for adulthood? How do we define success for those kids once they become independent adults? And what kind of hopeful attitude can we have about their situation? Um, And I just think this is, it sounds fascinating. Like I haven't I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, and yet, obviously, like, we have to think about how we provide for people who don't fit into the mainstream in the way that we expect them to and that have these kinds of challenges and opportunities. So I think it just sounds just really interesting, and I love the idea of going around and trying to see what it is like in different states because we know that the situation in different states can be so different in the types of social services that are offered for people. So I think it just sounds like a really fascinating book. So Hard Landings, Looking into the Future for a Child with Autism by Cami McGovern. Oh, that does look well sound really good. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where we need to have books about this sort of thing that come mm-hmm. out, you know, every now and then so that people are again like because there's just so many directions for people's yeah. attention to go. Yeah. So just just like bring that back and be like, hey, this is <laughs> this is important. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, on like, we're just going to keep pivoting to com- like wildly different topics. Yes going to be this sitch. So my next one comes out August 10th, and it is Maiden Voyages, Magnificent Ocean Liners, and the Women Who Traveled and Worked Aboard Them by Sean Evans. Uh, I was just listening to another podcast about the Titanic, and (laughs) it was, I think it was like everything you wanted to know, and there was this guy who's just been researching it his whole life and talking about ocean liners of, you know, the early 20th century, and this book is specifically about ocean liners, but about these women who worked on them and uh, traveled via them. And it's just like, you know, this time in the the world and I, a very limited time, right? Because we had like sailing ships for a very long time, but they were dangerous. And I mean, of course, Titanic sank. But the point being that nor- ocean liners became like for a brief window, just this very glamorous and very slow paced mm-hmm. <laughs> means of crossing this vast ocean. And then now we just don't do it. We take this like cheap plan and we wear our sweatpants, which are very comfortable. I'm not knocking that. But anyway, so this book talks about the early 20th century when you had transatlantic travel and how it was this thing to like, you know, you go on this big ship and that women who were starting to be more independent were also, you know, going on this and some were going for fun, some were going for work, um, some were going to reinvent themselves. And so it looks at, you know, sort of like this, uh, if we look at the class 
system aboard uh, an ocean liner and how it reflects society. Um, he looks at that. So you had, you know, the luxury of the upper deck, uh, you know, kind of like the middle deck, second club, whatever. It was like fine. And then you had steerage. And so you had Marlena Dietrich traveling on these and Wallace Simpson, who married, you know, the uh, crown prince uh, or king. Was he a king at the time? I don't know. I didn't watch the crown. Um, and then he had to step down. I guess he was king. And then Josephine Baker, and then uh, second class, you had sort of like these pioneering like career women. And then in steerage, you had, it says Emigre Maria Riffelmacher. And I don't know who that is, but I bet I'm going to learn and it's going to be fascinating. So and then they also talk about people like Violet, the unsinkable stewardess Jessup, who survived the Titanic. So it's just like one of those books where you you learn about a particular time in history, a particular sort of career venue or path slash, uh, I don't know, like means of travel. <laughs> I mean, it's a niche. It's a niche book. And uh, and then you also get a lot of biographies of, of people who are no longer with us, but who led fascinating lives. So I love books like this. That again is Maiden Voyages, Magnificent Ocean Liners, and the Women Who Traveled and Worked Aboard Them by Sean Evans. I love books like this, too, because you read them and then you, like, get a little bit about a person and you're like, oh, man, I read about that in a totally different book. And there's, like, a whole other book just about that thing. And it feels like one of those books that will, like, send you off in a million different directions because all of a sudden you want to read, like, a biography of Wallace Simpson or something like that. Oh, my gosh. Exactly. By the way, I tried searching this. You know how sometimes you'll search something in Google and assume that Google can read your mind? <laughs> and sometimes it can. But I literally searched Maiden Voyages, like the title. And then <laughs> obviously it was like, oh, so here's things about Maiden Voyages and what that means. I was like, no, the book. <laughs> Why don't you know? <laughs> yeah, I think this one sounds really fun. And like... Also, too, I never thought about there being like a golden age of ocean liners, but you're totally right. Like there was a very specific time period in which ocean liners were the optimal way of travel. And it wasn't that long Mm -mm. because like they're really not an optimal way to travel unless you're rich and have a lot of time on your hands. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then like now, I guess they still, I guess you could do like a cruise ship, but those those sound fun. Yeah. No, they're not the same. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so my next pick is a memoir, a Beautiful Country, a Memoir by Chen Julie Wang, and comes out in September from Doubleday. Uh, and so this is uh, an immigration memoir. So um, Chen arrives in New York when she's seven years old in 1994, and she, so in China, her parents were professors. Uh, in the United States, her family is considered illegal, and it will take a lot of work for them to become citizens. So her parents are have to work in sweatshops and sushi factories. Uh, they moving to the United States is, is really challenging for them. Um, she goes to school hungry. She is forced to teach herself English through library books. Her mother uh, is suffers a lot of like pain and physical issues coming to the United States and the work that she does. And yet, the author is supposed to. She has to act as her mother's nurse and her family's translator, and cannot really ask for help. And so. You know, it's just really, um, it's a, an immigration memoir, a story of people coming to the United States and trying to make their way here and what the challenges are that are. And I, I there are a lot of memoirs, I think, in this genre, but uh, the buzz that I have seen around this one really highlights how beautifully written it is. And I think, like, there's always room for more of these stories and especially about bringing, I think the more we can read immigrant stories, the more, like, it helps make that like those really uncomfortable and like racist discussions we have about immigrants like it brings faces to that and it makes them more 
uh, impactful, I think. So I, I, yeah, it just sounds really lovely and the buzz that I've seen about it makes it sound like it's a really excellent uh, example. And, you know, just I love Memoirs by Women and all of that. So Beautiful Country, a memoir by Chen Julie Wang. Um, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, it's it's like you were saying, basically, like memoirs and telling your story is another way to sort of bring about empathy. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, people are like, oh, that's right. <laughs> An actual, like, you know, a whole like story of someone's life. Mm-hmm. Or I guess part of it, because memoirs are usually like, here's a specific section. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, totally turning text again. Uh, I am now going to talk about jobs and uh, essential jobs and okay so the book is called dirty work essential jobs and the hidden toll of inequality in america by al press it comes out august 17th i did a newsletter for true story then book rights nonfiction newsletter a little bit ago about like specifically about like weird jobs and i realized that i'm just like fascinated with mm-hmm. <laughs> learning about people's like different jobs mm-hmm. so when i saw this which like not only talks about jobs that you might not necessarily know much about, but also talks about, you know, this sort of, again, this inequality and and what is an essential job and all these these ideas that have come to the foreground during COVID. Um, I was like, this looks really, really interesting. So uh, some of the jobs that uh, Press talks about are drone pilots who carry out targeted assassinations, um, undocumented immigrants who man the uh, kill floors of industrial slaughterhouses, guards who patrol the wards of the United States' most violent and abusive prisons. So one of the the sort of theme running throughout this are um, what he calls people who perform society's most ethically troubling jobs, right? And that we are shielded from these like morally questionable activities that a lot of people who have more privilege do not have to face. Like we don't have to like, we're not in a position, most people, of having to like do this job that we, if we really were like, Thinking about it, we might be like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, we have – like, there's so much shielding. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you not only don't have to think about it, but you then also don't have to make that choice. So that, again, like, less privileged people are doing. So with the COVID-19 pandemic drawing this attention to essential workers, it also is sort of exposing how bad many of these jobs are that we are still calling essential, but then also not paying that well. Like, it's this awful system as – I think many of us are now aware. So if you are interested in learning more about this, which I just, gosh, so not to get all like, I literally just like did that thing where I like leaned on one hand and like started looking pensive. But <laughs> it's just like this particular thing with essential jobs. And I, I can already feel like everyone kind of mm-hmm. going back to normal. I was thinking earlier today about how, grateful everyone was for people working in the grocery store and now i feel like that's just you know it's kind of like oh yeah well of course you're here and it's like no it's not of course Mm -hmm. and i mean i'm not doing that from like a i could feel myself doing it too and i have to keep being like no like these things like we have to like maintain this mentality but anyway so this book is uh dirty work essential jobs and the hidden toll of inequality in america by al press yeah i think the timing on this one is super interesting like I don't know if the author and the publisher intended for it to come out like sort of on this side of the COVID pandemic in the United States or not, but, or if, you know, it was like pushed or delayed or something. But I think like that really reset our ideas about essential workers for a while and about like how important a lot of those jobs that we don't 
give a lot of attention to are. And so I think probably this one hits differently than it would have like two years ago, potentially. Oh, for sure. Um, which I think is really fascinating. And yeah, the part about the ethical and compromised jobs, that's that's a really fascinating topic too. So excellent pick. That sounds really good. So I picked my next one because I read uh, a previous memoir by this author earlier this year. It's an older memoir. And when I saw that they had a new one coming out, I was really excited. So the book is We Are Not Broken by George M. Johnson, which comes out in September. Uh, And so Johnson is an activist and author. Their previous book was All Boys Aren't Blue. Uh, And this one is a book, a memoir about celebrating black boyhood and brotherhood. So this book is a story of George Garrett, Rahl, and Razul, who were four boys raised by Nanny, their grandmother. Uh, And Nanny was a huge part of Johnson's first memoir, and she was just a really fascinating person. But um, because of the way that that book was structured and framed about their kind of coming into their queer sexuality and all of that, we didn't get as much about Nanny as I think like I would have wanted. And so I'm really excited that she's going to be a center of this book. So uh, this is about the boys growing up together, experiencing early brushes with racism, experiences at their family barbershop, uh, love and loss and all of those different things. And so um, in this book, Johnson is trying to capture the experience of growing up as a black boy in America and the family stories that they all have together. It also says that it includes touching letters from the grandchildren to Nanny, which, gosh, that just sounds like so charming and lovely. And so I just think this one sounds really, really, I really liked All Boys Aren't Blue. And so I am excited to see kind of a follow-up or companion to that. So that is We Are Not Broken by George M. Johnson. Oh, that sounds really good. I like the letter thing. Yeah, that sounds really lovely. (sighs) Okay, my next pick is Castaway Mountain, Love and Loss Among the Waste Pickers of Mumbai by Saumaya Roy. I I like the start of the description of this, which is all of Mumbai's possessions and memories come to die at the Deonar Garbage Mountains, which is so evocative visually. Yeah. (laughs) Like, but also, you know, obviously like, oh my gosh. So basically their garbage mountains are always kind of smoggy because of trash fires And eventually, after it says as wealth brought uh, Bollywood knockoffs, fast food and plastics to Mumbai cars, uh, there was a community that started growing up around uh, these trash piles called, uh, made up of migrants and rag pickers who would make a living by reusing, recycling and reselling. So the center of this is Farzana Ali Shaikh, who is uh, a girl who becomes one of the best pickers in her community and says that. She basically becomes increasingly sick by the trash mountains, but is also like kind of obsessed with them because of all of the things that you can find there and that she thinks that like she might find, you know, some like really, really valuable item that will like completely save her family. So uh, they call it a narrative instilled with superstition and magical realism, which I'm I'm very interested in what that means. The author, uh, Roy, is a journalist and uh, activist, so... You know, like how like she uses that. It says to um, craft a, a modern parable exploring the consequences of urban overconsumption, which I think is something many of us living in cities can relate to. So again, that is Castaway Mountain, Love and Loss Among the Waste Pickers of Mumbai by Somaya Roy. I'm very interested in that one too. Like it, just like a topic I know absolutely nothing about, but yeah, and the the mixture of like fictional elements or like fictional styles, I think could be interesting as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like uh, nonfiction is such an elastic, in mm-hmm. a way, genre because, um, you know, at it, some you can you can do some stuff with fiction within nonfiction mm-hmm. and have it still count. And I know that then it's just sort of like one of those what is art, like you know when you see it, <laughs> yeah, kind of things. But I, I have determined it is the same for nonfiction books. Which brings us to our second sponsor, which is Footnotes by Cassine Gaines. For readers of Hidden Figures and Something Wonderful, Footnotes is the story of New York in the Roaring Twenties and the first Broadway show with an all-black cast and creative team to achieve success. Amidst a culture actively whitewashing, controlling, or trying to prevent their stories from being told, these artists changed the course of American entertainment. This groundbreaking group of performers and the creators sowed the seeds of the Harlem jazz scene and paved the way for people of color on stage and screen, ultimately leading to productions such as West Side Story, Black Panther, and of course, Hamilton. 2021 marks the 100th anniversary of the opening of the musical Shuffle Along, which is the Broadway sensation that the book is based upon. So this is a behind-the-scenes look at this first all black acted and produced musical. So 1921 is when the curtain rose on Shuffle Along. It had nuanced, thoughtful portrayals of black characters. The potential fallout was terrifying, but this is from the first jazzy, syncopated beats of composers Noble Cecil and Yubi Blake. New York audiences fell head over heels. I love that. The author, uh, Gaines, has conducted in-depth research on Broadway, Shuffle Along, and all the key players, and was in direct contact with the families and obtained personal photographs, which are included in the book. If you're looking for more Black stories, in particular Black Broadway, which is awesome, um, check out Footnotes by Cassine Gaines. That sounds so good. I know. Man. There are so many good books. It's just ridiculous. Now I want to listen to the music of Shuffle Along. I know. Me too. Me too. Awesome. All right. So uh, my next pick is Personal Effects, What Recovering the Dead Teaches Me About Caring for the Living by Robert A. Jensen, which sounds dark, but uh, it got on my list because of the same thing we talked about of like being interested in weird and strange jobs. And that's why this one caught my attention. So Jensen owns the world's leading disaster management company. And so in this book, he chronicles what happens behind, like, the yellow tape when they respond to a disaster. So um, his company has responded to things like the Oklahoma City bombing, the Bali bombings, the 2004 South Asian tsunami, Hurricane Katrina. And so his company brings in practical uh, information, and they assist with recovery of bodies, identifying victims, and repatriating and returning personal effects to surviving family members. The book also talks about how he's all involved in the emotional recovery that comes after a disaster, helping guide families, governments, and companies how to do this, because like none of us are, no one is prepared to respond to a disaster. And so part of what his company does is try and help that. Um, so it is a look at the work that he does and the lessons that uh, he has learned in doing that job. And also is part memoir, so talking about he how Jensen actually came to start doing this line of work and how he manages his life amidst like having to respond to disasters in some way. So um, I think this one could potentially have some really tough parts to read, but I also, yeah, like I'm a, a nerd and I love learning about jobs and about seeing like how things work and how they get put together. And so I think this one sounds like an interesting perspective on that and something I haven't read about before. So that is Personal Effects, What Recovering the Dead Teaches Me About Caring for the Living by Robert Jensen. Oh, that sounds really good. Shoot. Yeah, like difficult, but I think it it could be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Okay, my next one is White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding and Segregation in the Age of Inequality by Cheryl Cashin. It's out September 14th. As always, there's always like a ton of books that come out in September, but Mm -hmm. this one in particular stood out. She shows how the government created ghettos and affluent white space and basically entrenched the system of American residential caste which is the, uh, quote, linchpin of U.S. inequality, uh, and she issues a call for abolition. So um, starting with, so going back to this whole, like, you know, like we have the ghettos and then affluent white space, uh, she talks about the iconic black hood, which, uh, like slavery and Jim Crow, is a peculiar American institution animated by the ideology of white supremacy and how politicians and people of all colors propagated ghetto myths to justify racist policies uh, that concentrated poverty in the hood and created high opportunity white spaces. Um, So in this, Cashin traces the history of anti-black residential caste. So this is like boundary maintenance, opportunity hoarding, which like, by the way, okay, so I know it's in the subtitle. The phrase opportunity hoarding is not to reuse a word, but it's so evocative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just like, I really like that it's so prominent in this book. Because mm-hmm. um, it just, it not to whatever, I just want to be like, makes you think. But genuinely. So, and also stereoty- stereotype driven surveillance, which um, I'm sure anyone listening can think of many instances of this happening in the news. So it also unpacks its current legacy so that we can begin the work to dismantle the structures and policies that undermine black lives. So this is like she's pulling on two decades of research in cities like uh, Baltimore, St. Louis, Chicago, New York, and Cleveland, um, and looking at residential caste as it relates to housing, policing, schools, and transportation. Like this sounds so good. Uh, And again, coming out in September, That is White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding, and Segregation in the Age of Inequality by Cheryl Cashin. You're totally right. Opportunity hoarding is such an evocative phrase, and it really, like, gets at the heart of what they're trying to talk about with two words, which is really impressive. Yeah, like, what happened and is still happening. Like, goodness gracious. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, All right, my uh, next pick is is a pivot called She Kills Me, The True Stories of History's Deadliest Women by Jennifer Wright, which is also out in late September. Uh, And this is a collection of stories about women who murdered people for revenge, for love, and even for pleasure, which has many historical details that will have true crime junkies on the edge of their seat. That was from the jacket. So this is about how in a lot of true crime men are expected or are the killers and that they're across you know there are lots of studies and works of art that portray male violence uh when women are part of true crime they're often considered the victim they're often the victims or portrayed as uh prey uh in this book it is about women as predators uh so it is about female murderers who um quote they do the things that women aren't supposed to do and live the lives that women aren't supposed to want lives that are impulsive and angry and messy and inconvenient And so this is a book that is just a bunch of different profiles of women who have uh, murdered people. So uh, the the description talks about how it is at the middle of the Venn diagram of feminism and true crime, which is a a Venn diagram that I like to be right in the center of. Um, And so there features 40 women who murdered out of necessity, fear, revenge, or just for fun, which is, you know, dark and all of that. But also I like true crime and I like true crime that explores different kinds of stories. Oh, and um, what I saw of this one, I think it looks really like it's got some illustrations and stuff too. So I think that could be kind of fun. Like it's not a str- it's not like a super f- straight nonfiction book. Like it looks like it's a little bit more artsy than that. So which I think that sounds cool. So she kills me. The true stories of history's deadliest women by Jennifer Wright. 
I like that you said it. The illustrations made it sound fun. <laughs> this reminds me of Lady Killers by Tori yeah. Telfer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But no, that's interesting. I mean, if anything, you know, it's it's pointing out this fact that women who who have, you know, murdered people are frequently, it frequently becomes like they're somehow still seen as like less of a threat. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, these are these are dangerous, bad people. Like you can't just be like, oh, but it's like a woman. So either she should be like punished less or like something, you know. Yeah, it's it's good to sort of talk about the fact that uh, <laughs> it feels ridiculous to be like women are human, <laughs> you know, but um, <laughs> there we have it. Anyway, uh, next book is Praying to the West, How Muslims Shaped the Americas by Omar Mualam. comes out September 21st. Again, lots of good books in September. Mualam is a journalist. He travels to 13 remarkable mosques and discovers the surprising history of their communities. Um, and it's one of, uh, it, well, it looks like it's one of those books that's also uh, kind of a memoir. So, you know, he's looking at the history of um, sort of Muslim influence in uh, the Americas, but also his own Muslim identity. And he says that until recently, Muslim identity was imposed on me. But in the wake of things happening the last few years, uh, he feels compelled to reclaim the thing that makes me a target. And he says, no doubt Islam has a place within me, but do I have a place within it? So like very, you know, sort of like thinking and like, like contemplating kind of thing, but also looking at the unknown history of Islam across the Americas, from California to Quebec to Brazil, and it says to Canada's icy north, which I like. And just talking about the role that uh, Islam has had in the Americas from industrialization to politics, and again, just sort of like in his own life. So going from this history to the personal thing, which we are doing now in nonfiction. No judgment there. <laughs> it's a fine trend. Um, so anyway, again, that is Praying to the West, How Muslims Shaped the Americas by Omar Mualam. Excellent pick as well. That one sounds really interesting. Yeah. This one is maybe not as much of a pivot as we have been doing in other uh, transitions. My next pick is Shelf Life. Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller by Nadia Wasif, which comes out in October. And this is a book about uh, three women who open a bookstore in Cairo in 2002. Uh, at the time, there were nothing like their bookstore, which is sort of a feminist bookstore, existed. Um, the three women who started it uh, was Nadia, her sister, and then a friend of theirs. They had no business degrees, no formal training, and kind of nothing to lose in opening this store, and nothing like what they wanted to do uh, existed. And And in 2002, government mismanagement was sort of impacting culture in Egypt. Books were considered a luxury rather than a necessity. But uh, over the next 10 years, their bookstore became a rousing success, and they now have 10 locations, 150 employees, and a huge fan base. So this memoir is about opening the bookstore, um, their journey from kind of first opening it to being this, like, amazing success in Egypt. Uh, It also has uh, stories of many of their regular customers. And... uh, about what Egypt was like over that period as it was moving sort of toward revolution. Um, It is a feminist rallying cry and a crash course in running a business under uh, difficult circumstances. And so again, like this just checks a bunch of boxes for me. Story of women doing cool things, interesting jobs, of course, like a book about books and a bookish life is always really fun and charming. So I just am very excited about this one. So that is Shelf Life, Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller by Nadia Wasef. Um, That just reminded me of during the revolution in 2011, 
how I'm going to start crying. Oh, no. <laughs> how people formed like a human barrier around. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Around the Egyptian Museum of yes. Cairo mm-hmm. to protect the things. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. It was just really nice. Okay. I'm going to talk about uh, Firestone rubber now. <laughs> Pivot. Oh, gosh. I just really like history. Um, Okay. Empire of Rubber, Firestone Scramble for Land and Power in Liberia. It's not funny. By Greg Mittman uh, out October 12th. So in the early 1920s, Americans owned 80% of the world's automobiles and consumed 75% of the world's rubber. But the U.S. in its, you know, colonial expansion had 1% of the world's rubber growing under any of the its territories or the territories it grabbed. So this was, you know, a a bottleneck that it says hampered the nation's explosive economic expansion. So to solve this, the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company decided to go to Liberia, which was founded in 1847 as a free black republic. Um, It says Empire of Rubber tells a sweeping story of capitalism, racial exploitation, and environmental devastation as Firestone transformed Liberia into America's rubber empire. This sounds really interesting, mainly from one of those, like, histories that I did not know perspectives. Like, I had no idea this happened. And, like, in 1920s, 1847, so it's like 70 years after the country's founding, mm-hmm. they just, like, go in and devastate it. Okay. So, anyway, um, if you like little-known histories that uh, still have a really big impact, this would be one of those. So, Empire of Rubber, Firestone Scramble for Land and Power in Liberia by Greg Mittman. That fact you opened with about 80% of the automobiles, but only 1% of the world's rubber, man, like that is, yeah, that is something. Wow. I did not. That is indeed something. Oh, goodness. All right. Uh, So my last pick is a collection of essays, uh, These Precious Days by Anne Pashat. It comes out in November. I love her writing so much, and I love her essays. Um, And part of the reason I'm super excited about this one is that the title essay, These Precious Days, was published, I think, in Harper sometime earlier this year. And I read it, and it is just just such a good essay. So in that essay, she reads an early galley of Tom Hanks' short story collection, and then that introduces her to this woman, uh, Tom Hanks' assistant, Suki, who then uh, they form this really incredible bond and she actually ends up moving in with Anne and her husband for a bunch of COVID and they just have this like incredibly profound, intense friendship that is really like forged in the like weirdness of the pandemic. And it's just like such a good essay. And so I'm super excited for like that and then kind of all of the other ones that might come in this collection. Um so yeah, there's all sorts of stuff about, there's an essay about Kate DiCamillo's children's books. There's an essay about the gifts given by her three fathers, um, the vision of Eudora Welty, and all sorts of different things. Like she just writes about so many different topics. So I think a new essay collection is great. So that is These Precious Days, Essays by Ann Patchett. Ann Patchett and her friendships. I know. It's like a real thread. Um, I Okay, this is a sad book, but I think it's funny that I put the last book as this will all be over soon because <laughs> uh, it was not on purpose. And it's not even in chronological order. It comes out August 10th. Okay, this book is called This Will All Be Over Soon, a memoir by Cecily Strong. I really love Cecily Strong. 
So when I saw that she had a book coming out, I was just really excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was like, oh, it's a sad book because I don't usually do sad books. But um, this is about uh, her relationship with her cousin, Owen, who um, passed away in early 2020 at age 30 from uh, a brain cancer. And so before she could really start to process her grief, COVID hit, right? Because that's early March. Um, So she was in New York, which was uh, hit really, really hard, unsurprisingly. And then uh, she relocated after being there for a bit to an isolated house in the woods upstate, where it says, uh, trying to make sense of Owen's death in the upended world, she decided to write. So the result is this will all be over soon, which is about uh, loss, love, laughter, and hope, which are general concepts, but something we can all relate to. Uh, She writes it in a sort of a diary style, which I'm really interested to look at. Um, And she also chronicles the challenges of beginning a relationship during the pandemic and uh, her fear when her new boyfriend contracts COVID. And uh, also, this is a lot of hard topics. So maybe if, you know, this fall when it comes out, if you're not in that place, don't pick it up. But if you are uh, feeling up to it, um, she talks about uh, when they lost longtime Saturday Night Live staff member Hal Wilner to the virus, uh, which if you watch SNL, they, they did a whole thing for him. And then she also talks about formative events from her life, including uh, her high school expulsion and how, which I did not know happened, and how that led to her career in theater and then years later getting SNL. But the book centers around Owen. So sorry to end on like a sad one. But again, uh, I think this has a lot of sort of processing of pain and grief that is probably something we're all going to have to do um, at some point. So this is maybe just um, kind of like a, a, if not a roadmap, at least sort of an example of what that can look like. So again, that is This Will All Be Over Soon, a memoir by Cecily Strong. That's a really interesting pick. I'm glad you mentioned that one. I love when people who you think about in one arena do something different. Like I wouldn't have pegged Cecily Strong as writing a memoir about grief and loss and yet like I'm very interested to read it because she is really fun as an actress so she is you you're much better at sad books than I am that's true I do read more sad books I would say yeah so that (laughs) that sounds really interesting all right so that is a bunch of uh books coming out in the second half of 2021 we have barely scratched the surface there are so many more we'll get to talk about but at least a few that we are excited about in some way so with that, we'll wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books we're reading right now. Um, I like just finished a book and I haven't started another one, but I'm getting ready to go on a many day vacation and I have a huge stack of books. And the first one I think I'm going to pick up is Fiction, uh, People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry. She wrote a book last year called Beach Read, which is a romance novel about two writers. Um, This one is about two lifelong friends who have gone on vacation together every year. And then two years ago, something happened, and now they do not go on vacation anymore, but they're trying to repair their friendship. Uh, And Beach Read was really fun, so I'm excited to start out with one that I think should be very just, like, nice. So People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry. Oh, that does sound nice. Yeah. That's good. I started reading Square Haunting, uh, Five Lives in London Between the Wars by Francesca Wade, which uh, I feel like it's not a surprise that I'm reading it. But um, I listened to a podcast interviewing Francesca Wade about, uh, and all the five writers are all women. They all lived in Mecklenburg Square between World War One and World War Two, And it's like Dorothy L. Sayers and Virginia Woolf. And um, Eileen Power, I think, who wrote a book called Medieval Women that I read in high school, which I was just like, oh my gosh, Eileen Power's in this book. So anyway, 
it's a lot of just very, you know, British women in the 20th century. <laughs> so enjoying that. Um, in conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you have a few minutes, we'd love it if you would take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then you can follow us there so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. So with that, I'm Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs>